Well, since most of you have been present since we began studying this epistle together, I want to start off by asking a question. And I want you to think about how you would answer it if somebody were to ask you this, knowing that you have had spent some, some time in 1 Corinthians. You've heard some overviews of 1 Corinthians. You've heard some of the things that are laid out there in chapter 1 and, and the initial problem that Paul's dealing with. If somebody came to you and they asked you, what was the great danger for the Corinthian church? What would be your response? How would you answer that question? What was the great danger for the Corinthians? Was there really any danger at all? In an ultimate sense, was there really any danger? Some people might say, if you explain to them the things that were happening, the things that we've seen, some people might say, so what if they're dividing? So what if they're quarreling? So what if they're displaying these evidences of spiritual immaturity and lack of love? So what? They're, they're saved, they're sanctified, they're going to church, they're, they've been enriched with gifts, they're enjoying fellowship with the Son of God. They're going to heaven when they die, it seems. So what does it matter? Who cares if they're struggling with these other matters that we might consider more, more practical matters, relational things? Who cares? Their, their souls are right. Their, their eternity is settled. What, what's the danger? As long as they have heaven as their final destination, do any of these other things really matter? What is the danger for them? Why would the apostle take the time to write this epistle, the other epistle that we know as 2 Corinthians? It is likely there's at least one, if not two other epistles. That would make four total epistles to the church in Corinth. Why? What is the danger? Well, if thoughts like that ever enter your mind when it comes to your own spiritual life, and practical matters. If you ever look at yourself and you say, well, yeah, I've got this sin, and that sin's prevalent, and that sin's prevalent, but I'm going to heaven when I die. I mean, what, what's the big deal? What, what does it really matter? So what? If thoughts like that ever come into your mind, you need to understand that you're on very dangerous ground. And the manner and haste with which you handle those types of thoughts is of utmost importance. I'm not saying those types of thoughts might, will never grace the threshold of your mind. I've actually brought the thought before you now. So you're thinking about it. We've all got sins in our lives. I think we could all say there are things that, or I hope we could all say there are things that we're working on practically here or there. What does it really matter? What is the great danger? What if you don't fix it? What if you just say, you know what? I'm going to heaven when I die. I'll, I may deal with it. I may not deal with it. What's the big deal? What's the danger? If you ever begin to think like that, you're in a dangerous spot because a true saint will not abide under the comforts of, or the expected comforts of heaven hereafter while ignoring or to the neglect of the comfort of holiness here. A true saint won't do that. A true saint would never say, well, it's okay, I'm, I'm comfortable knowing I'm going to heaven I'm not really concerned about holiness right now. That, that is actually the thinking of a lost person. That's the thinking of a false professor. The great danger, anytime we receive 
any kind of rebuke or reproof or teaching or correction or warning from the Word of God, the danger is that we don't improve upon it, like we heard the last couple of weeks. The danger is that we don't improve upon it. And if, if we make no improvement upon what we hear, and that is our consistent response to the Word of God, what we're showing is that we have never been saved at all. We might profess to be Christians, but if you can hear the Word of God repeatedly, constantly be taught, constantly be corrected, constantly be rebuked, constantly be warned, and you say, well, I hear what you're saying. Those are good things, but what's the danger? I'm going to heaven. If that's the way you think, you've never been converted. The great danger for the Corinthians was apostasy. That's the great danger for every Christian or, or professing Christian, every, every uh, recipient of any of the epistles of the New Testament. The great danger is always apostasy. The great danger from Paul's perspective is that they would continue in their current state, unaffected by his words, unchanged by the Holy Spirit, and ultimately prove to be lost, that his labors among them would prove to have been in vain. And he makes this clear at the end of 2 Corinthians in chapter 13, verse 5, he says, examine yourself. One of the last things we have of Paul to this church, we hear him saying, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you indeed, or unless indeed you fail to meet the test. In other words, Christ is in you, Unless, having tested yourself, you prove to be lost. You prove that whatever you professed, it was not real. It wasn't true. The test of our union with Christ is not whether we sin or not. Because we will sin. That's not the test. The test is how we respond when the revelation of our sin comes to us. When God makes our sin known. Whether it be in our own hearts uh, and in private as we study the Word of God, whether it be in preaching, whether it be in conversation with other believers, when, when our sins are brought to our eyes, the test is how we respond, what we do with that. And the great danger is that being confronted with our sin, the way of escape, which is in Christ alone, the great danger is that we say, well, I'll just wait. I'll repent later. Or we say, what's the danger? I'm going to heaven. The great danger for the Corinthians was ultimately apostasy. Now, we're good Reformed folks, so when we hear talking like that, we say, but wait a second, isn't God sovereign? We'll talk about the sovereignty of God this evening. Isn't God sovereign? If they are truly saved, they can't be lost. So, it'll work itself out in the wash. And if they are lost, well, it is what it is. It'll, it'll prove to be the case. That's typically how we want to think about this concept of a, a false professor who appears to be a Christian and yet falls away. And the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word to make that evident in reality, in time and space. The answer, I would say, to that objection that God is sovereign is first, the secret things belong to the Lord. We don't have the right to say, well, if I'm saved, I'm saved, and if I'm lost, I'm lost. We don't, we don't get the right to say that. Well, God is sovereign. He knows. If I'm elect, I'm elect. 
No, we don't have that right. We have commands. We have obligations. We have responsibilities to the Word of God. What the Lord knows in an ultimate sense or has decreed from eternity is really none of our business in that category. But secondly, as we saw last week, every Christian has a real responsibility to make use of the grace of God that's been given to us. That responsibility is laid at our feet to make use of what God gives, especially in His Word, and that will happen as a fruit and an evidence of our salvation. We, we can't use the sovereignty of God to object. We ought to be using the sovereignty of God to say, therefore I will improve on what I've heard. I will make use of it. Rebuke and reproof and corrections and warnings from the Word of God are a means that the Lord uses to confirm and preserve and protect His persevering saints. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. Persevering is our job. That's what we do. But we cannot do it apart from the preserving work of the Holy Spirit of God and the means of grace that God has given. We as saints persevere by heeding the warnings that God gives in His Word, by improving upon the Word of God. That is the means by which we persevere and God preserves us through that. The hope of the apostle in dealing with the Corinthians is that his instruction would be used by the Spirit of God as an effectual hook in their consciences to pull them back from their drifting and to reestablish them in the pursuit of godliness. Every warning you see, every warning passage you see in the Scripture, that's the way it's meant to be. A Christian doesn't read the warning passages and say, Oh, that's not for me. I'm elect. No, a Christian says, Oh my. What do I need to do to make sure this isn't me? That's what the apostle is trying to do. Again, the great danger is apostasy. That having been enlightened and having tasted the heavenly gift and having shared in the Holy Spirit and having tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, the great danger is that they would fall away. That they would return to their vomit. They would return to wallow in the mire. Not that they would lose their salvation, but that they would ultimately prove to be false converts. You say, I don't understand. That sounds mysterious. It, there is absolutely a mystery here I cannot explain. But the apostle writes to pull them back, to warn them, because he wants to see them growing in grace. He doesn't want to leave them to sink back into the darkness of their sin. But as we've seen, there's a difficulty in their growth. There's a difficulty in their moving forward. There's a roadblock in their sanctification, and it's their own spiritual maturity, or lack thereof. They're, they're immature. They think very highly of themselves. They consider themselves spiritual and strong. But then there's this irony that we see throughout these epistles. There's, there's jealousy and strife among them. They are beginning, even at this point, to despise the apostle himself and his ministry among them. Well, those are evidences of immaturity, but they thought themselves mature. In verse 6, which we read before of chapter 2, he says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, but then we skip to chapter 3, verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. The, there's a maturity problem. Remember Paul's writing to defend his ministry. 
He said over and over that he didn't come with worldly wisdom, but now he's saying that doesn't mean I didn't come with... This is bad grammar. He's saying I didn't come with no wisdom. It's not that there's zero wisdom in what I preached. It's just not worldly wisdom. He's saying I did come preaching wisdom. It just wasn't the wisdom of this world. That's what we've seen. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. He's defending his ministry. The Corinthians just weren't putting to use the wisdom that they had been given. And again, the evidence, or this was an evidence and a cause of their immaturity. So now we're going to pick up with verse 7. And Paul is going to explain positively the nature of the wisdom that he has been given and that he imparts, all as a part of the defense of his ministry. And there's a warning issued here that can serve just as much a warning to us as it was to them if we'll pay attention. So we're going to look at verses 7 and 8 this morning under two headings. And the first thing that we see in verse 7 is Paul's apostolic stewardship. If you take a note, you can write that down. Paul's apostolic stewardship. He's defending his ministry here by reminding them of his apostolic stewardship. He says, but we impart... A secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The Corinthians were dividing up and quarreling. The Corinthians were full of jealousy and strife. The Corinthians were pitting preachers, God's sent preachers, against one another. And they were beginning to downplay and even despise Paul himself. And so as he is enumerating the foundational authority of his ministry, he starts here with the basics of apostolic stewardship. Now some of this will just be a review of what we saw two weeks ago in verse 6, but first we're reminded of who we're talking about here. He, he is following a negative statement. In verse 6, there was the negative, although it is not a wisdom of this age. And then in verse 7, we have the contrast, but we do impart, or we impart a secret and hidden wisdom. Follow the the train of thought. We, We do impart wisdom. It's not a wisdom of this age, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom. Here's the positive aspect of what the apostles preach. And I would remind you again that the we, the, the first person plural pronouns, for the most part in this section, the we here is a reference to the duly appointed messengers of the new covenant. We could say the holy apostles and prophets of the New Testament church. That's that's who we is. The we is not every Christian. The we is the apostles and prophets. These were special men. Now there are some things that certainly overlap that we can draw out from what the apostles and prophets of the New Testament did and what happens in the church today under the regular ministry of the Word. There is some overlap. There, there are some things that, that are uh, continued or there is continuity, but there's also discontinuity. The, the reason that's important is what Paul is describing in this section all the way through chapter 2 is meant to emphasize the importance of that first generation of preachers. Their importance. Remember we traced the first person plural pronouns through to statements like this in chapter 4 verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Now that's going to be very important in just a few minutes. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Just keep that in your mind. Stewards of the mysteries. But we see there the sort one of the climactic points of, of those plural pronouns, us. Us versus you and we. He says in chapter 4, verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Us, you. We, you. Again, the we is a reference to the duly appointed messengers of the gospel, specifically the apostles and prophets of the New Testament church. Next, we're reminded of the special function of these men. They're special men with a special function. These apostles and prophets had a very special function in the early church, which we see in the next word, but we impart. And that word means to convey using words. To convey using speech. And we trace that word out as well. We trace it through the, the passage to see how, this, how the train of thought goes. In verse 6, we do impart. Verse 7, but we impart. A secret and hidden wisdom. Verse 13, this we impart in words not taught by human wisdom. And then chapter 3, verse 1, the ESV translates it address, but it's the same word, impart. I could not address you as spiritual people, or we could read it this way, I could not impart to you as if you were spiritual. We do impart, we impart, this we impart, I could not impart to you. See the, the train of thought there, that's what he's doing. The apostles and prophets, and Paul here in particular, were special men with a special function. Their function was to impart a message. And they did this through spirit-filled preaching and spirit breathed writing. We have the fruit of their labors in the Scriptures. But this is their special function. Though there are no longer apostles and prophets, now the impartation function is filled by the pastors and teachers of the New Testament church as they expound the Word of God as it is written. Men today pastors, teachers in the church today, do not impart in the same way, or I could say they do not receive in the same way that the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament did. They received direct from the Lord, wrote down what they have. God has given us His Word. Now we just open up and expound what they have recorded for us, what God has kept for us. So there is continuity, but there's discontinuity. These men were special. I can't emphasize that enough. That's the point of this chapter. These men were special. And then we see that even more clearly when in the next thing that he says, their, their special deposit. He says, back to verse 7, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Now a lot of times we, we think of the apostles as, as preachers. Uh, they, some of them were men who wrote down what we have in the Scriptures. Perhaps we would say they were preachers who preached and, and wrote infallibly, which is correct, and we ought to have very high views of what we have in the Scriptures, as they are the very Word of God written. But I wonder if you've ever taken notice of the, the special way that the Bible talks about what the apostles were given to give to the churches. Last week we, we saw Christ say, To you has been given the secret or secrets of the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's something special. Something special. 
Here we have this language, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Now, that's the way the ESV translates it. It's not a good translation because the word secret here is a word we see many other places in the New Testament. It's the word mysterion, which, from which we get our term mystery. If we wanted to read it a little more literally, it would sound like this. But we impart the God kind of wisdom in a mystery. The hidden or the concealed or we impart the God kind of wisdom in a hidden mystery. This is something special. We want to put it all into as few words as possible. Paul's saying, we impart the mystery. The mystery. Now, we've talked about the biblical doctrine of a mystery before. But there are two texts that really lay out this idea of mystery for us. Ephesians 3 and Colossians 1. Now, hopefully this doesn't muddy the water here, but I want to turn to both of these passages and read them. They're, they're bigger than normal proof texts in a sermon. They're, they're big chunks. But I want to read them together and, and see if we can draw some parallels. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and I'll read verses 1 through 13. It's a big chunk. But we need to understand what a mystery is in the Bible. Beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known or might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now I want to point out several things. First, Paul makes reference to the special role or his special role as an apostle. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. We know Paul was called specifically the apostle to the Gentiles. He says, of this gospel I was made a minister. What he's saying is what he says often at the beginning of his epistles. God made me an apostle, a special minister for his service to the Gentiles. 
So we have his special role as an apostle. We also see he references the special stewardship that was given to him and the apostles. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. God gave Paul, and we would say by extension the other apostles and prophets, God gave them a special stewardship. This stewardship he calls the mystery. And we see how this concept of mystery is to be defined. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 2. The mystery was made known to me by revelation. The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This is a biblical mystery. We could actually say this is the biblical mystery. There's only one. And the idea is that there is something that God decreed from eternity that He did not fully reveal under the Old Covenant, but then when Christ came into the world, He fully manifested all the fullness of His purposes and plan from eternity in Christ. That, that's, that's the mystery, and that's why it's called a, a mystery. Some things were revealed, but not all of it. They knew some things. They were looking forward to the Messiah to come. They knew there would be an atonement for sins, but they didn't understand all of the details as we do. The details of the Son of God taking flesh, becoming a man, walking the earth, bearing in His body our sins, dying on the cross, rising on the third day, entering into heaven to make intercession. They didn't, they, they didn't see all of that perfectly. But then Christ comes into the world and lives and dies and raises, rises from the dead, ascends into the heaven, the Spirit comes, and all of a sudden everything makes sense. As Christ told His apostles, the Spirit will come and He will lead you into all the truth. He will make all of these things clear. That's the mystery. It is in its fullness what we typically call the gospel. That's the mystery. It's the gospel. But it's, it's, it's much more than simply there will be an atonement for sins by blood sacrifice so that God can be appeased. That's, that's general. It's much more than that. We, we know that if I told someone that, you would say that's not the gospel. We know that the gospel has many more details than that. The person and work of Christ specifically and how God has worked through His Son to reconcile sinners to Himself. We call this mystery the gospel and all the fullness or the, the depths of the gospel itself. But then we also see that he mentions this concept of glory, which is the outcome of the mystery. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Well, Paul was suffering for the gospel. He was suffering as a preacher of the gospel. He was suffering for the proclamation of the mystery. But their glory, our glory, is tied up in our hearing of the gospel and the application of that to us. So Paul's suffering for the gospel was suffering for the mystery which encompassed the entirety of their salvation, even their glorification. That's why he can say, I'm suffering for your glory. I'm going through all of this so that you can be glorified. How will that happen? That's the story of the mystery, the great mystery that God is going to glorify sinners through what He's done in His Son. Glory for the people of God is the consummation of the mystery of Christ in us in the eternal state. So we have here the special role of the apostle, 
the stewardship given to the apostles, a definition of mystery, and the consummation of the mystery, which is glory. All right, now turn to Colossians chapter 1. We'll read verses 24 through 29, a shorter description. But I think you'll see he says a lot of the very same things. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. We see the same things. He makes a reference to his role as an apostle. My sufferings for your sake in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the church of which I became a minister. The role of the apostles was warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that they might be made mature in Christ. That was the function of the apostles. He makes a reference to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. The concept of mystery, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. It was concealed, now it's opened up. And we see references the concept of glory to them. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You hope for something that's still to come. Glory is the final redemption, the glorification of the saints. Christ in us now is the, the earnest, the down payment, the deposit that gives us the hope of a coming state of glory, the, the consummation of the mystery. In both of those texts, the special role of the apostle, stewardship given to the apostles, the definition of the mystery, and the consummation of it in glory. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians we see those two texts paralleled. We come back to 1 Corinthians, really chapters 1 all the way through 4. We see many of the very same things. When he says, we impart wisdom, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom, he's referencing the role of the apostles. He references the special stewardship given to them in 4.1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, where do we see the concept of the mystery defined? Well, we're not really there yet, but in, in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 2, look what he says. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of, the man, of, heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, that is, things that were hidden... Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us. It was hidden, now it's been made known. This is the mystery. And we've already seen in verse 7, he uses the, the, the word mystery itself. 
And then we see the concept of glory. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Or we impart the God kind of mystery. God kind of wisdom in a mystery which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Hopefully you see there's a bunch of connections there. Now what what did that exercise do? Well, for me, this confirms my suspicions that what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 2 is the same thing that he was doing in those other passages. He's defending his apostolic ministry. He's showing why the apostolic ministry was so important. He's pointing to the special deposit entrusted to him for the salvation of souls. But the second thing that that does, we put all of that together, is it helps us to nail down what he means in chapter 2, verse 7, when he says, we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God. Or we impart the wisdom of God in a mystery, hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. When Paul says we do impart, or we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, he has in mind this great apostolic deposit, this stewardship of the gospel. He has in mind the mystery of Christ. He's talking about the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hid in the person and work of Jesus Christ conveyed through the preaching of the apostles. Now we have it in His Word. We, we've got it all opened up for us. The Corinthians didn't have what we have. They, they, were, they were submitted to the, 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 the apostles themselves to, to write and to explain, to come and to preach. We have it inscripturated. But that's what he's doing. He's, he's saying, essentially, we impart the great mystery of the gospel given to us from God. And a part of this, as we just saw, is God's ancient purpose. God decreed this before the ages for our glory. God's plan, purpose from eternity has been to save fallen men and bring them to Himself in glory, in a glorified state where we can share direct fellowship with God Himself. What He's saying is this is why Christ came. This is why Christ lived. This is why Christ died. This is why Christ rose from the dead. This is why Christ ascended into the heavens. This is why Christ is presently interceding to make sure that you and me enter into the glorified state with God forever. It's for our glory. God decreed it from eternity. These sinners will be glorified. They will come into my presence and enjoy me forever. And Paul says, we have been made the ones who steward that mystery to bring that gospel to people. That's what he's saying. So if we put verses 6 and 7 together, and I know going really slow through an epistle like this, sometimes it can get, we, we kind of lose ourselves. But let's read verses 6 and 7 together now. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. In other words, he's saying, don't think that we've abandoned all concept of mystery. On the the contrary, far from it. We have been made stewards of the greatest, deepest, highest, 
widest wisdom that has ever been conceived because it is literally the very mind of God incarnate to save sinners. Far from being foolish, this is a great depth of mystery. That's what he's saying. This is his apostolic stewardship. Now that brings us to point number two. In verse 8, we see the danger of rejecting the apostolic stewardship. The Corinthians were in danger. We might not think of it that way, but they were. At the point of writing, they were haggling over which was their favorite preacher. And we might say, who cares? Yeah, they're arguing a little bit. What does it matter? It's just a little arguing. It's just a little division. It's just a little... You know, back and forth. What does it really matter? But by the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he has to say this to them. If someone proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, you put up with it readily enough. You bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. You see the, the, the advancement, the progress. Oh, what's the big deal with arguing over preachers? Well, it led them to the point where somebody could come in and preach another Jesus and they said, eh, it's okay. That's how far they had gone. At this point, he's trying to protect them from that. And so he says in verse 8, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now again, it, it does seem like he's taking a jab at those in places of power because this is what the Corinthian culture longed for. I want to be in power. I want to be a ruler. I want to be of the nobility. Well, he says here, the rulers of this age, they didn't understand this wisdom. It's not that, it's not that they were above our wisdom. It's that our wisdom is above theirs. They, they couldn't comprehend it. They couldn't understand it. The rulers of this age, we saw this two weeks ago, they have no access or no special access to the wisdom of God and the gospel because of their position. They don't get backstage passes because they're rulers, because they're in charge, because they have high positions. They can't show their, their government identification badge and say, I, I'm, I have special access to the mystery. It didn't gain them access because God's wisdom is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. He actually says none of the rulers of this age understood this. They didn't understand the heavenly wisdom. They didn't understand the mystery of the gospel, especially as it centered around the man, Christ Jesus. Now, to be sure, this understanding is not just simple ignorance. This, this they did not understand, this is not, oops, we, we didn't catch that part. Now, what he's describing here, just like we see throughout the Scriptures when it comes to ignorance or foolishness, He's describing their rebellion. He's addressing their rejection of Christ, what we might call moral negligence or moral ignorance. They did not understand because they rejected the revelation of God and sought the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. Remember, you walk through the Gospels, the, 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 the Jewish rulers... The rulers of this age in, in the area and time in which Christ ministered, they were not confused about Christ's power, Christ's ministry, Christ's preaching. They just rejected it. 
They, they rebelled against him. It wasn't just that they didn't know. This was a, there was a moral taint to their ignorance. And what was the fruit of this, this sinful negligence? Well, he says they crucified the Lord of glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But what did they do? They rejected God's Messiah. They rejected the, the crowning jewel of the mystery. And they ended up following through with His crucifixion. Psalm 2, 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Remember when Peter was preaching in Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 4, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It's not like you didn't know. You rejected the stone. This stone, he says, has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They rejected Christ. If we asked Peter, based on your sermon, who crucified Jesus? He would say, the rulers did. The rulers of the people. The highest, the wisest, the smartest. They did not understand because they rejected the revelation of God. And rejecting the revelation of God, they rejected God's Messiah. And rejecting God's Messiah, they went all the way to the point of crucifying the very Son of God. Now that might seem like the extreme to stretch all extremes. Right? Unbelieving rulers... In their unbelief, they just didn't believe. They rejected it. We don't want to believe that. Crucified the Lord of glory. They, they crucified the only begotten Son of God. That, that's an extreme. They went as far as one could possibly go. Not only did their position as rulers not grant them high status before God, but instead they went so far as to have the only begotten Son of God put to death. Now that tells me unbelief or moral negligence is not a small matter. We might say, oh, this, this little sin here, not dealt with, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Well, the Corinthians went so far as to accepting false teachers. These rulers went so far as committing the greatest crime that's ever been committed on planet earth. They started with unbelief. They started with rejecting Christ. And they went so far as to crucify the Son of God. Now you might say, surely you can't be suggesting that those who continue in unbelief today are capable of crucifying the Lord Jesus. That's already taken place. We can't go back in time. That's already happened. I would say, we are actually capable of doing something even worse. Even worse. Because we're, we're like the Corinthians. We can't say, oh, I didn't know. I, di I, didn't, I didn't understand the mystery. 
Because we've got the word of God. We've got it clear. We can't claim ignorance to the gospel. We have the mystery of Christ recorded up for us in God's word. And we've heard the mystery of the gospel of Christ from this pulpit more times than any of us can count. We can't say, whoops, I, I, I didn't, I, was, there were some things that were unclear to me. We can't say that. The great danger for us is not a sin of moral ignorance, but a willful rejection of the fully revealed gospel of Jesus Christ. The great danger for us is apostasy. If you don't believe me, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Again, I'm suggesting that we could be guilty of a crime greater than those who crucified the Lord Jesus. I'm going to begin in verse 11 and read through chapter 6, verse 6. Notice the parallel between this and what we've seen in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have the, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then to have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. The Hebrews were, were beginning to not pay attention to what they had heard. They were becoming dull of hearing. The Hebrews were not maturing. They needed milk, not solid food. The Hebrews had heard the word of God many times. And if we were to keep reading, the, the picture is like rain constantly dumping on, on a, 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 a farmland. Constantly dumping. The Hebrews had been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They had experienced all of that. What was their danger? That after all of that rain, that after all of that preaching of the mystery of Christ, they produced thorns and thistles. The great danger was that after all they had received, they turned back to their vomit. They produced the, or they, the danger was that they would fail to produce the fruits of repentance and faith and every grace given to them by God. Again, the great danger was apostasy. But how does he describe this apostasy? What's the illustration? Crucifying once again the Son of God. Holding Him to contempt. 
It's bad enough that they crucified him the first time. But to hear and receive the mystery of the gospel over and over and over again, and the fruit of that is thorns and thistles, he's saying that's like crucifying him again. That's like doing it a second time. The reality for those of us who sit in churches like this is the same for the Corinthians and for the Hebrew churches. The reality is that when we have heard all that we've heard, when we've drunken in the early rains and the latter rains season after season, we read the good books, we listen to the best preachers, we sit in plain Scripture-regulated worship services, but the fruit of all of that After all of these years, the fruit bears itself and that fruit is that we bite and devour one another and divide and quarrel and there's jealousy and strife, thorns and thistles. If that's the fruit, God from His perspective looks down and He says that that's the same as if you had heard over and over and over what He sent His Son to do live a life in the place of sinners, to die in the place of sinners, to raise from the dead in the place of sinners, to give us life and power and victory over our sins. You held all of that in one hand, and then over here you held your selfish pride and your sins, and you said, you know what? Put Him back up on the cross. Put Him back up there. What does it mean to me? I could care less what that man did on that cross. I'm just going to live my own way. That's how God sees it. That's serious. Very serious. We actually commit a greater crime than those who first called for His crucifixion because we have more light than they had. We've received more insight than they had. So when Paul says none of the rulers of this age understood this, For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Yes, he's making a point about their status as rulers. Yes, he's pointing out their awful wickedness in crucifying the Son of God. But I believe that there is implicit in this a warning to every one of us. That if we hear, but we refuse to comply, we will be held accountable for great sins against the Son of God Himself. If you hear and refuse to improve upon what you hear, you are in danger of falling away. Not losing your salvation, that's not possible. But falling away from a false profession. The evidence of a true conversion will be that you improve upon what you hear. If we hear the Word of God, and especially the mysteries of the Gospel, and we simply move along mentally, oh, I heard it, what's next in the liturgy? Move along to the next thing. All right, now it's time to eat. All right, what's next? We'll take a nap, come back later, do it again. If that's the way we think, move along, move along, move along. We do that repeatedly over and over throughout our lives. We're just crucifying the Lord of glory every time we get together. For some of you here, it might be better that you just stop coming altogether. It would be better to do that than to come week after week just heaping up more condemnation for yourself and the judgment. Every worship service is like sticking another piece of dry kindling on the flames of your own judgment because you will not make use of what you're hearing. You will not heed the Word. That's the great danger. 
It's not that, well, they might argue a little bit more. No, no. The great danger is that they prove that they have not the Spirit of God at all. Now, before you do that, that is, you say, you know what, I think that's what I'll do. Fine then, preacher, fine. I'll just stay at home. Preacher told me to stay at home, I'll just stay at home. Before you do that, let me remind you again of the mystery of Christ, which was decreed before the world began. Yes, we all deserve eternal destruction. We do. We're all sinners. Nobody in here in, in that regard is any better than anybody else. Our, our nature as human beings is devastated by the effects of sin. Our nature is ruined. How do I know that? Because God has to give us another one. And even after we're regenerated, we're still waiting to receive glorified bodies. We, we've been devastated, every one of us. But God sent His Son into the world to live and to die as a substitute for us, for sinners. His life was lived as a substitute, a replacement for ours. That part don't work. Take it out. Replace it with another one. That part works. That was His life. Our life won't work. Our life will not meet God's standards. God says, I've got a replacement. Put this one in its place. It was the perfect life of Christ. His death was offered for the sub, as the substitute for ours. We deserve death. We, an eternity dying will not pay for our sins. That's why it requires an eternity of punishment. God put forth His Son and His death. Here's the replacement. Three days later, He raised Him from the dead. That's God saying... I accept the replacement. The replacement's good. The, 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 the breach has been reconciled. The problem has been fixed. Now, anybody who comes to me through this one can be saved, will be saved. God has accepted the work of the substitute in our place. That's what the resurrection means. And now He commands all men everywhere to repent and turn to this Jesus in faith. Just take Him. He raised Him from the dead as if to, to, to exalt Him before the eyes of all. That anybody who wants to take hold of Jesus can take Him. He commands us to reach out and take for ourselves. And as Peter said, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So before you say, well, the preacher told me I should just stop coming. The preacher also is saying you do not have to perish. God says you don't have to perish. If you perish, that's on you. A way of escape has been made. Christ has been given. You can be saved today. God put forth His Son if you'll take Him. He says just take Him. Come and, come and buy and eat without money, without price. Just take freely. You don't have to perish. Those of us who are saints, surely we understand this warning is very severe. Examine yourselves. How do you handle the Word of God? Are you, are you about the business of hearing? Seeing the mirror shine in your own heart and saying, you know what? I've got work to do. God, you and I have, have some business to take care of. I need the help of the Holy Spirit. 
Are you about that business of improving upon what you've heard so that you can grow in grace? Are you a growing Christian? Examine yourself. Let's pray together.